The teaching text today comes from John chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. This can be found on page 995 of the Shed Bibles. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Carolyn. Good morning, everyone. The Lord be with you. Hey, my name is Troy, and I had the privilege to serve alongside Ashley and Tim and Delwyn and the rest of our staff to lead this church. Um, it is a great joy, and I'll just let you know that as Ashley was leading us to pray, I'm certainly holding this church that way. Not by myself, but certainly holding it and realizing there is so much more that we need than we can manufacture on our own. And, uh, I'm, and yet, I'm thrilled to be able to play my little part. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to say hello in person. I know that this was one way of saying hello, but please come and say hi at some point. That would be great. Um, it says here in my notes that since this is the first Sunday of a new ministry year, I should make a comment about football. <laughs> and I should make this comment to demonstrate that I am relevant and I am in touch with the cultural climate. So, sports, scores, teams, championship hopes alive. We begin a new teaching series today <laughs> called Essentials. That is not one for me, sorry. Essentials, over the next six weeks, we're going to focus on a few core truths around which our church centers itself. One of our hopes is that we will, well, we'll do two things. We will regather after a felt like a long, scattered summer. And we will also reimagine, or we will refocus on these couple of things that enable us to faithfully fulfill our church's vision, to be a Jesus people for the sake of the world. And so that's what we're going to do over these next couple of weeks. And today, we kick off this series focusing on God which maybe doesn't sound like a very surprising place to begin, particularly since every single, what, isn't that what we do every week? Doesn't every week focus on and talk about God? It, it doesn't sound very novel. It doesn't sound very new. God is the subject of every week's service, right? God is the object of every week's worship, right? 
I mean, it is God that we sing and pray to every week, that we seek to learn from and about God every single week. We are led into worship and to prayer and to fellowship with one another every single week by this God. It is this God that we remember, and it's to this God that we express gratitude. It is this God's fully realized rule and reign that we anticipate every single week when we come to the table, right? Why would we need to have a sermon about God? Why would that seem particularly important? may not be that interesting to say that we're focusing on God today. I remember a church that I worked at um, before coming here a couple decades ago. Um, we were invited as a staff into a book study together, and we were reading a book uh, meeting every single week. And I showed up to the first day of this book study, and we were all handled this somewhat slim little book. Um, and on the cover, it just had one word, and the word was God. And after I sat down at the table and I peeked through the table of contents, I leaned over to one of the people that was at the table with me and I whispered in a snarky way that I don't particularly feel proud of right now, but I whispered to this person, you would think this book would be longer. <laughs> Based on the subject matter, this seems like not very many pages to be about God. Uh, I think any book, any sermon that seeks to focus on God will inevitably be way too short. That is not a warning for you, by the way. Unless an author, even if an author or a pastor intends never to finish, there will be things left unsaid. There will be more content than could ever be covered. I when I thought about this, I started to think, why did I say that I would preach this one? Where to begin and what not to say? I was telling my wife last night, this sermon is hard, be not because I can't come up with something. I'm not sure what to leave out. What do you do with a subject matter like this? So let me say at the very beginning, I recognize that what I have to offer today isn't even the beginning of a discussion. In fact, I think about what I'm doing is I'm, I'm like part of a millisecond of the inhale before the very first word of the discussion. I'm barely making a contribution. But God. So in an attempt to narrow the field a little bit, Particularly today, I'm going to be talking about the Trinity, which doesn't make it easier. <laughs> We've sung a lot about it, but the, con the subject matter does not make this easier. So, you can see sort of at the bottom of the screen there, I just want to cover a couple of beats, recognizing that this is just the beginning, okay? Let me begin here by defining a term. What is it that I mean when I say Trinity? And I want to offer up what may be for us a bit of a working definition. Okay, so when I say Trinity, here's what I mean. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity is the belief that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons. Okay, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And 
these three persons are co-equal, they're co-eternal, and they share the same divine essence. Clear? We can move on? I recognize no. I recognize there's a lot here, right? Um, And I don't have time to unpack the whole thing, but I want to at least put that as a working definition in front of us and to remind us this. The Trinity is a uniquely Christian concept. No other major religion in the world worships or confesses a triune God. In fact, every other world religion would find this objectionable, maybe even deplorable. This is a uniquely Christian proclamation. For about 1,700 years now, the Christian faith has been seeking to understand what the Trinity means and to understand and communicate why the Trinity matters. Today, I want to spend the bulk of my time with the second part of that, why the Trinity matters, but it probably is helpful to spend just a little bit of time seeking a little bit of understanding. So, let me start with this. The Trinity is not in the Bible, but it is biblical. It's not in the Bible, but it is biblical. Here's what I mean by the distinction. Um, You will not find the term Trinity anywhere in the Bible. You won't find it defined. You're not going to find a doctrine laid out in the Old Testament or the New Testament. There isn't an explanation given by Moses or Paul or Jesus. In the Bible, you're not going to find the Trinity explicitly written down. However... We find multiple places scattered all over the Bible that talk about, that point to, that maybe even foreshadow the Trinity. In the Old Testament, let me just give you a couple. Okay, in the Old Testament, a quintessential text is Genesis chapter 18. Early on in the story, Abraham, key Old Testament figure, he's visited by three people, three men. And these three men, the entire time that they're with Abraham, they speak as with one voice. It's one of these spots in the Old Testament that we interpret and say that's pointing toward, it's foreshadowing the idea of God appearing as three in one. New Testament, Jesus Matthew 28 charges the disciples to go and to baptize, and this is where we get this Trinitarian form that's used at baptism in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. This gets expanded as we get into the letters portion, Paul in 2 Corinthians. He concludes the second letter to the Corinthians with a blessing, with a benediction, similar to what you would experience here week in and week out, and it's in a Trinitarian form, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. First Peter, very different author, he talks about particular attributes or expressions of the three, the knowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and the obedience of Jesus Christ, another tri, uh, three-person triune image. And then, and then this last one here, Apostle Paul talks about there's the same Lord, the same God, the same Spirit associated with 
the church of Jesus being given gifts. This is just a small sampling. It doesn't scratch everything, but it helps us to see, even though the Bible is not a theological textbook. More about the Bible next week, by the way. Next week, our focus will be the Bible. The Bible isn't designed, it wasn't written to be a theological textbook, but we do see in its pages, we see early understandings, early belief, early expressions of the Trinity represented in those pages. It's really, frankly, not until the 300s that the Christian faith at large puts some effort into trying to wrestle to the ground this thing called the Trinity. Under the orders of a guy called the Emperor Constantine, he calls together about 300 Christian leaders from all across the then known world to come together. We know it as the Council of Nicaea, the year 325. And that council essentially puts before the Christian church an understanding language to try to clarify the Trinity. Now, I could talk about this for weeks. I love this particular time period of history. This stuff really gets me fired up. What I want to say now, though, is what's important for me, to why I want to highlight that, what's important maybe to realize and to know is that even though Constantine had all kinds of mixed motives with the things that he was doing as the leader of the then civilized world, one of Constantine's impulses in bringing together these leaders and to try to clarify the understanding and the way that the church held this doctrine of the Trinity is that he wanted to see the church unified. The church was scattered all over across the empire and Constantine wanted to see unity achieved. He was pursuing unity. More about that in a minute, but that's one of the impulses behind trying to clarify the Trinity. All right, enough of the what it is. Let me turn for now a couple minutes to why I think the Trinity matters for us and why we consider it one of the essentials. I basically have one point and I want to break it down into a couple sections, okay? The beginning of my central point today is this. The Trinity is not a mystery to be solved. It is a mystery. That is true. It is absolutely a mystery. But I recognize that this sentence might be troublesome for some of us. Many people in the room, I'm guessing, feel discomfort with something that you don't understand being unresolved, right? I'm going to assume that that's true, that that's not sufficient. You want to figure things out. The Trinity is no exception. People throughout all of Christian history, they've sought to make analogies to make sense of this three-in-one concept. Some people have performed, quite frankly, amazing philosophical gymnastic feats to try to wrap their heads around this concept. But all of our attempts, every one of them, past, present, and future, every one of these attempts to understand this mystery will be incomplete. And I want to recognize that that can be really frustrating, that that can be really disappointing for many of us. 
I really admire the posture of Abraham Heschel, a Jewish philosopher. He died in the 70s. And um, he has a particular posture and way of encountering mystery and a way of thinking about and holding unknowing. I think this could be really helpful potentially inspiring for some of us as we stare into the mystery of the Trinity. A couple little quotes from Heschel about mystery. He says this in one of his books. It is actually in our inability to grasp God that we come closest to him. How about that as a possibility? He goes on to say that There are times in our lives, his phrase is, when we will be, when when, uh, reality will smite us with amazement. And the moments when we will be smote, is that the past tense of smite? When, When that thing happens to us, there will be times it won't be because we can grasp everything and are able to communicate it exactly. It will always be. Amazement will always come to us when there's something we can see, but it's just outside of our grasp. And then he brings this amazing phrase that we always praise before we prove. Mystery calls us to praise before we prove, to recognize. I think this, I think Heschel encourages us, some of us particularly more than others, encourages us, don't be burdened by the need to crack the code on the divine. Release that burden. And instead, embrace the possibility, the probability that it is mystery itself that has something for you. To embrace the mystery as being for your good. I love that posture. Okay, back to my central point. The Trinity is not a mystery to be solved. It is a relationship. The Trinity is a relationship into which we are included and we should imitate. So let me break this part down. We are included in the Trinitarian relationship. And this is a key starting place. And maybe this is a good time to address the language that's part of the Trinity that has become problematic and troublesome for some people. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to stress that the use of Father and Son is not intended to attach gender to God, and it's not intended to elevate masculinity. I know that in many ways that's been used that way. The intention is not that. I think the intention of this language, Father and Son, is to stress relationship. There are other ways of talking about the Trinity. There are other ways that have been used to talk about this. Um, Source, word, and spirit. 
creator, redeemer, indweller, plenty of others. Those are fine alternatives, but I will tell you that my hesitation with those alternatives is that they downplay the relationality. And in that way, Father-Son preserves and elevates that. And I think it's really essential that instead of the Trinity remaining some kind of theological calculus that we're trying to make sense of, to bring us back to the centrality of relationship. In academic terms, as it relates to the Trinity, we would say this, all human beings are ontologically grounded in the divine life. What that means is our very being, every one of us, every created human, our very being is rooted in this triune relationship, rooted here. Because of God's grace and because of God's gift, we are included in this relationship. One theologian put it this way, we celebrate the sheer favor, the sheer favor that has adopted us out of an orphanage of alienation into the holy family of Father, Son, and Spirit. Out of, isn't that a great phrase? Out of an orphanage of alienation into the family, the holy family of Father, Son, and Spirit. By God's sheer favor, nothing we could ever have done or earned or manufactured on our own, we are included by God's sheer favor and not simply into the family of God that we call the church, absolutely that, but not simply that, we've also been included into the family of the Holy Trinity. We've been included into that relationship as well, not just with one another, but fundamentally into the Trinity's relationship. Jesus says in John 14, this text we heard uh, just a a couple minutes ago, um, we will come to them and make our home with them. Do you see, do you see the initiative in this text? We will come and we will make. God's action is on display. The Trinity is at work. We are included because of their work and action. Amen is right. The Apostle Paul, in his writings, 50 times he uses the phrase, in Christ. Another 40 plus times he uses variations of that, in Christ Jesus our Lord, or in Christ Jesus And uh, the the author and theologian, Andy Root, he claims this, that when Paul is using these phrases over and over and over again, it's Paul's way of trying to make sense of our being included in this relationship, that it's all because of God's action. It is in Christ. In Christ is actually the pathway for us into this relationship given to us, afforded to us. Incredible. In Christ, this is the pathway for us to abide into the home the Trinity makes 
with us. And this is indeed what we were made and created for. In the words of Cheryl Bridges John, she says this, it's the end goal of God's mission, the restoration of divine human fellowship. That's the goal. The goal is that we would be at home, at home in this triune relationship. A relationship in which God in Christ makes for us and with us. Thanks be to God. And the Trinity is a relationship we should imitate. Though it will always be a mystery to us, we get glimpses of the Trinity, if you will, we get glimpses of it in action. And in that action, that should move us to action. It should move us to live and move and have our being in very particular ways. And so, I just want to highlight three, I'm calling them imitation invitations for us out of the limitless possibilities that are realized and expressed in the Trinity. First, I want to highlight unity and distinction. John 14, Jesus highlights the oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit while also demonstrating and explaining, expressing the distinctiveness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their being and in their activity. That there is unity and distinction. And this, I believe this is the reality that all human beings long for. To be united and to also be yourself. To not have to be subsumed to, to belong, in order to belong, to uh, get rid of your distinctiveness or your individuality. I think what we see in the Trinity is unity and distinction coexisting perfectly. This is the reality that people throughout history have tried to uh, represent and express when they're using these word pictures to talk about the Trinity. You've probably heard some of these, water in its three forms, as a way of trying to understand unity and distinction. An egg, a shell, a yolk, and whites. Or, uh, Augustine said uh, the Trinity is like the mind. The mind has knowledge and memory and a will. These are ways of trying to explain uh, distinction and unity coexisting. Again, once, once again, all of our words and all of our images are really limited. Um, this is one that I find that's helpful. Maybe this is a helpful image for you. Trying to demonstrate that there's unity and distinction always coexisting. And this unity and distinction is why Paul will eventually try to, he will use the imagery of one body with many parts or one body with many members as a way of trying to give us an image of how do we live into the Trinitarian reality, that there is unity and distinction. And this perfect unity that exists in the Trinity, this is desired by all people. But it's a unity 
Though it allows for distinction and though it invites distinction, it is a unity that we know this is such a pain in the neck to try to realize. Like everything is against it. What will ultimately unify humans to one another is our being united with this perfectly unified and distinct divine life. There is no other way. Our best strategies, our best events, our best impulses will all be short unless we are unified with this divine life. Second point of invitation is to love and selflessness. Love is the basis of all of the Trinity's relationship and activity. Jesus stresses love in verse 23 of John chapter 14, and then all these cascading implications and results of love or of not loving. We see throughout the Bible that love is the Trinity's form, it's the Trinity's being, it's the Trinity's strength and character and motive and work and force. Space and freedom are given and they are allowed for each to be and to function. And then sublimely, this is embodied in the person of Jesus who demonstrates ultimate selflessness motivated by this Trinitarian love. And then final invitation for imitation is to collaboration and cooperation. In the divine life, unique gifts are exercised and celebrated. Notice throughout Jesus' life how often, how often is Jesus giving credit to the Father and to the Holy Spirit, constantly pointing away from himself to the Father and to the Spirit while being in cooperation and collaboration with. Justo Gonzalez, he, he says it this way, the divine life, the Trinity, share in such a way that none of the persons is ever impoverished. <laughs> there's, this, there's no sense of scarcity in the Trinity. There's no sense of unequal effort. <laughs> there's no sense of somebody doing all the work and other people taking advantage of it. There's no sense of some left behind while others sprint ahead each participating for the benefit of all. Now, I know this is not an exhaustive list of invitations, but in the words of Julie Andrews, this is a very nice place to start. (laughs) What if, what if a church sought to imitate the Trinitarian life and centralize these three things. What if made them central? I want to end with a story. I hope to only cry seven times in the next one minute. I want to tell you a story about something that recently brought the Trinity to life for me. So um, we were in a staff meeting here, and uh, we, were, we, were, we, were, we were talking about these tasks 
these tasks that just kind of linger and dangle on your to-do list, they're the kinds of things that aren't not backbreaking, but they're kind of annoying, the kinds of things you just have to do, but they're the things that you almost never give time to. The sorts of things that will be on the to-do list today, and then they'll probably slide over to tomorrow's to-do list, and the one after that. And I, does anybody have these things in your life? Do you know what I'm talking about? Thank you. I appreciate that. I see that enthusiastic hand. So we're talking about these things. We call them tolerations. We're talking about these things together. And, uh, and then this past Thursday... Two of the guys that I work with, um, they went to my house when I, when I wasn't there, and they did one of those things that was on my list. They just showed up on some random midweek morning and collaborated, I might even say conspired <laughs> together to get into my garage and to take care of something. I, uh, I told them that I wouldn't share their names. So let's just call them Tan and Dairy. Okay? <laughs> so Tan and Dairy, they went up on my roof. And they did one of these things that I've just been struggling to do and I've been struggling to care about. All right? And after I found out, I went and talked to each of these guys individually. Obviously, just say thank you. And um, so each one of these guys, separately from one another, in conversation with me, they said something. They said things like this: "Oh, you know, Troy, you do stuff for us all the time. I don't know why this moves me so much." So we're so happy to just do a little something for you. Now remember, we've got, we all have different kinds of gifts. And you use your gifts in really particular ways for us in our church all the time. We're happy to do the little things that we can do to help you out. And, and then, get this, then each one of these guys, when I was talking to them about what they did, they kept wanting to talk about the other guy. They kept wanting to brag about what the other one did. And they kept wanting to draw the attention to the other guy. And they kept wanting to say, isn't it so cool that he did that? Deflecting from themselves and trying to direct my attention to the other one. Jeez. Unified, cooperative, loving, selfless. These guys, in that one random little act on a Thursday morning, they brought the Trinitarian life to bear in my world. And you know what? They didn't just simply fix something on my roof. They brought love to my house. Embodying the Trinity doesn't have to look like creating a new world out of nothing. 
Embodying the Trinity doesn't have to look like setting the world on fire. Embodying the Trinity doesn't even necessarily have to look like giving up your life. Embodying the Trinitarian life can be as simple as the activities and actions that unify, that bring you together in collaboration with another person, that are selfless and loving. I'll tell you this, I wanna end here. It is not central. It is not central to the life of Marceau Bible Church that every single one of us agree about every little detail and nuance of every theological concept and every doctrinal statement that is not central to our life. But here's what I think is essential. It is essential that every one of us live out of this relationship that we have been included in, this Trinitarian relationship, it is essential that we live out of that life and seek to embody and imitate it for the good of all people. That is essential. So may Father, Son, and Holy Spirit empower us, inspire us to more faithfully and more passionately be a Jesus people for the sake of the world. Amen. Come, friends, let us celebrate the sheer favor that has called us from where we were and brought us together at the family table. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And we pray. How right and good and joyful a thing it is that in all times and in all places, we get to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you. We join our voices with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, Holy Spirit of the triune God, would you come and rest and move and work in these elements and in this place and on our hearts? That as you have called and gathered us from many households and backgrounds into one people, you have also gathered grain from many hills and grapes from many vines into these elements of which we partake. And so would you do that work afresh in us to unify us and renew us as we marvel at your inclusion of us in your life. Amen. And it was Jesus Christ 
The night he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples around for a meal. And at the beginning, he takes the bread and he blesses it. And then he breaks it. This is my body, broken for you. And after they'd eaten together, Jesus takes the cup and he blesses it and he says, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. It is the new promise I give to you. And so we do. We take this meal in every week to be reminded of the promise of God the renewing life of God. We gather four or five places around this room to come and take and eat or come and be served up front. Let this space also be a gift to you to pray. We have folks who would love to pray with you in the back, to tuck a prayer in the prayer wall, to take some time to light a candle uh, on behalf of your prayer as we as a community contemplate and are in awe of God's call into the divine life for all of us. And so come, come and take and eat, come and believe that the God who has made space for you in God's life certainly has made space for you at this table and in Christ's body, the church. This is for you and we rehearse this great story by speaking this simple yet profound mystery together. That Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So come friends, take and eat and be renewed for all things are now ready.